says, remind them of these things, charging them before the Lord, not to strive about words to no profit, to the ruin of the hearers. Be diligent to present yourself approved to God, a worker who does not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. But shun profane and idle babblings, for they will increase to more ungodliness, and their message will spread like cancer. Hymenaeus and Philetus are of this sort who have strayed concerning the truth, saying that the resurrection is already past, and they overthrow the faith of some. Nevertheless, the solid foundation of God stands, having this seal. The Lord knows those who are his. And let everyone who names the name of Christ depart from iniquity. And Father, we humbly pause and just ask now for the help of your Holy Spirit as we open the word of God together, as we continue now in our worship as we look into the word of God, believing that you use it to speak into our lives, to let us hear your voice, we pray that you'd give us an ear to hear what your spirit wants to say to this part of your church assembled this morning as we open this part of the word of God. May every intent and purpose and reason behind why you inspired it initially speak in a personal way to our hearts in this present day and hour. So bless your word, Lord. May we hear your spirit speak to us this morning, we ask in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen, amen. You may be seated. You know, what perhaps you suppose may be one of the most destructive forces that exists in our world. When you hear a question like that, maybe right away something comes to your mind, something like a hurricane or a tornado or an earthquake. But uh, I would venture to say even stronger than that, because it has greater ramifications in its destructiveness, that probably one of the most destructive forces that exists in our world is point blank error. It's lies. Uh, It's the opposite of what is true because error has the capacity not just to damage things physically, but it has the capacity to ruin and destroy people eternally, which has a much longer and far-reaching effect. Now, with that being true, I think it would be fair to say then that one of the most helpful forces among the world is truth. That is hearing the truth, knowing the truth. Remember, Jesus said that it would be the truth that would set us free, set us free from error and all the destructive influences. And in this section of scripture we're going to look at together this morning, I think it would be fair to say what you kind of see here is really truth's help versus error's ruin. You have truth's help, and that's emphasized, and then you see error's ruin. You see in this passage that the truth is incredibly beneficial for our lives in all matters. We see in this text that God knows the truth about everything. Uh, Though we may not know the truth about everything and everyone, God always knows what is true and what is going on in the life of every person, that God operates on the basis of truth and God won't compromise the truth. We see in this passage of scripture as well that the error in thought and word and actions and even teaching can cause ruin among mankind. Even striving about things that are wrong and unhealthy can just cause problems and ruinous effects and that God doesn't overlook and dismiss error very lightly and God will never compromise what is wrong to give mankind what their preference may be. Now, In the prior section we just looked at together last time, 
in verses 8 down through verse 13, Paul had just made some glorious, and I emphasize glorious declarations of truth, sound doctrinal truths about who Jesus was and is, being fully God and fully man, the perfect mediator between holy God and sinful man. He had made a declaration regarding what Jesus accomplished in dying for our sin upon the cross and rising from the dead demonstrating his power he had made a declaration about the power of the word of God a declaration about God's glorious salvation the good news that there's forgiveness of sins and the assurance of eternal life and this free gift that God offers and that we can obtain this salvation that God has chosen and wants to give to every one of us that if we're willing to just believe upon Jesus Christ, that there is salvation available to us as a free gift, and that as a result of our relationship with Jesus, that there's eternal glory that's available as a part of that experience of God's salvation, and that once our lives have been joined with Jesus, that we're dead to our old way of life, and God gives us a brand new life, a new life living together with Jesus. He declared that after we endure, if we follow Christ, that after we endure this hard world and the struggles of sin, that there's something far better that's coming, that Jesus is returning and he's going to set up his kingdom and will rule and reign with him. And that if we as people willfully deny and refuse Jesus Christ continually that God is even faithful enough that he in his faithfulness will give to the rejecting person of his son Jesus Christ what they ultimately desire and that he'll ultimately deny them access into heaven if that's not what they want and then of course the last truth he declared in verse 13 there which was so beautiful that if we're faithless God remains faithful and he cannot deny himself. That is, if we lack faith at times or struggle with unbelief in our lives or we perhaps are unfaithful to the Lord, that thanks be to God that the Lord remains faithful even when we're not faithful or even when we've been faithless or struggle and that we can rest in the faithfulness of the Lord. Now, let me just say, that's a mouthful of foundational truths for the spiritual life. I mean, those are important understandings. So in light of this and what he's just declared, that's why verse 14, Paul says in his next breath, Timothy, remind them of these things. Those things that he just shared with Timothy. He's saying, Timothy, be sure to put the people in remembrance of these things. It's interesting. Here's Paul as an older believer. Remember, this is the last book we believe Paul wrote before he died. So this is his sort of final will and testament, the book of 2 Timothy. He's about to depart from this world and enter into glory. He's been walking with Jesus a long time. Paul is a very seasoned pastor and he instructs Timothy as a young man and as a younger minister of the gospel. He says, Timothy, one of your roles is to purposely remind God's people of basic fundamental truths that they already know but they just need to hear reinforced in their life again and again people need to be constantly reminded of what they already know well, we know this in sports, you know, a good coach a lot of times will just always review and, and continue to reinforce the fundamentals of a particular sport. In the same way, spiritually, uh, to hear what is right and correct 
on an ongoing basis to have that reinforced in our lives is something that we all need. It's helpful to continually be reminded of the basic truths of God's word, the basic truths of spiritual life, because amidst all the lies that exist in this world that we're hearing 24-7 from media and people's voices and conversations, amidst all of the unhealthy winds of false doctrine that blow around the church and creep in through you know different forms and facets of what we call the church at large, the unsound biblical teaching that's out there, and then add into that all the battles that we all go through with our own thoughts at times and our own feelings that can be so strong and tempt us and sway us. There's an ongoing need to have someone remind us all the time. Things like what Paul has just spoken about to remind us, for example, about Jesus and who Jesus is to remind us wonderful things about God's love and different aspects of our salvation and what's available in our salvation. There's a need to be reminded about our eternal glory and to realize that one day this world is going to pass away and there's an eternal glory that's ahead of us to remind us about the power of God's word to remind us about like what Paul said, that even when you're faithless or when you fail, God remains faithful and he's going to remain faithful in the future no matter what the future holds. And to have those things reiterated to us, to be reminded of these essential truths found in scripture is so helpful because it does things like keep us stable spiritually. It causes a promotion of health in our soul and our way of thinking remember romans chapter 2 or excuse me verse uh, chapter 12 verse 2 where paul says do not be conformed to this world but be transformed by the renewing of your mind again the idea is that as we live in this sinful fallen world it's always trying to conform us into its patterns into its ideologies and ways of thinking. So the world's always pressuring you, whether in your school or your job or television, the world's always trying to conform us into its patterns. And the Bible says, don't be conformed to this world. Don't let it happen, but allow yourself to be transformed from the inside out by the renewing of your mind. And how's our mind renewed? By constantly being reminded, no, this is what's true. This is what's right. I'm thinking wrong again or what they're telling me is wrong. This and our mind is renewed by being constantly reminded of the truths of God's word, the basic things we know. It's good to be reminded of what's true biblically as well because it also safeguards us from false doctrine. And false doctrine does exist. There's bad teaching among the church. There are ideas at times that even as you know, God's people, we can just start to have incorrect spiritual ideas ourselves and being reminded of the truths of God's word safeguards us from those kind of things as well as the fact that it also helps us, as I said, from stumbling with our own human thoughts and feelings that we all deal with. We're these complex beings and we have all these thoughts that roll around in our minds and feelings and moods and, and it's being reminded of the truths of God's word that often help us not to be stumbled as we go through those things. So I would say this in regards to Paul saying, Timothy, remind the people of God these things. I would say to each one of us, whenever you're ministering to people, 
whenever you're serving people, maybe you're just having a conversation with someone, or maybe you're doing a teaching or you're offering some counsel, oftentimes people don't need some unique insight. They don't need some unique insight to what they're going through. You know what people more often than not usually typically have a great need of? Just a faithful reminder of what's true. Yes, I know this is going on in your life right now. And yeah, I know, boy, that sounds hard. But you know what? God loves you. And he's going to be faithful no matter, no matter what the future holds. And, and, and God's going to show himself faithful. And God's, I know, I know it seems scary, but, and just reminding people of just the simple, basic, fundamental truths of God's nature, of his goodness and his faithfulness and the truth of what God's word says, and just redirecting them back to things, listen, that they already know. But circumstances are making them fear or, or, or question or causing them to be discouraged and, and to just redirect them back to the fundamental things that maybe their mind is temporarily forgotten and sharing things to reinforce by reminding is a great and very helpful ministry. Now, having just exhorted Timothy to keep that emphasis on reinforcing stable truth, he then tells him also, verse 14, what really tells him what to warn or caution people against doing as well look as he goes on what he says remind them of these things but then he says charging them before the lord he says not to strive about words to no profit to the ruin of the hearer so he cautions timothy look make sure you warn or caution people he says who are prone to struggle over or to kind of dispute with others over certain words or human ideas that they have about particular things, which he says not only aren't helpful, but actually it ends up being harmful. The issue Paul's addressing here in verse 14, not to strive about words to no profit to the ruin of hearers, the idea is, is those who strive to prove some point, that's not even a biblical doctrine. It's just a strong conviction or some idea they have. Or, and again, a person can be so stubborn about wanting people to see things just as they do that they become like a verbal bulldozer with people and end up hurting people just to prove their point on a matter. And so they'll strive and debate and you know, over and, and there's such a need in their life to be right and for everybody to see things the same way that they see things that they fail to realize in their emphasis to prove their point, they're actually destroying people and they're hurting people emotionally or mentally or worse, maybe spiritually. And in comparison to major issues, it's just a minor thing of importance. See what he's they're striving about words not even true words over some word some meaning of a word or some particular you know thing that they've overanalyzed and it's become so important and it's having a ruinous effect on the hearts and minds of those listening and it seems that this was a common problem among the church in those days where people were debating and struggling over non-essential issues. People had become so passionate about proving their ideology or their particular thought about some subject they held on an issue that it was becoming destructive in nature. In 1 Timothy chapter 1, Paul warned of those, it says, who were obsessed with insights in endless genealogies. 
genealogies, the lists of names in the Bibles. I mean, that, that became so important. More important than God's love or sharing the gospel was, well, listen, there, there is this unique, deep insight in the Hebrew of what this genealogy, and, and they became so obsessed with these things that they became issues of striving to prove something. And Paul went on to say, in light of that, 1 Timothy 1, he says, which are causing disputes among people rather than godly edification, building people up. Again, in Titus uh, 3 and 2 Timothy chapter 2, we'll see later on, Paul tells Timothy there, avoid foolish disputes, genealogies, contentions, strivings about the law, for they are unprofitable and useless. Paul's well told him in 1 Timothy chapter 6, he warned of those who are proud, obsessed with disputes over words from which come strife. You begin to see here that there was indeed this prevalent thing of people who became so fixated on small issues, words. The idea is just small issues, not anything big in consequence, just small issues like words that they would fight everyone to prove their point and it was ruinous in its effect. And see, the problem is God wants our speech to build people up. God wants us to use our words to encourage and to edify and to strengthen. And for those striving with people, their words and ideas weren't helping. They were harming. So therefore, Paul says here in verse 14, Timothy, charge them before the Lord to cut it out. The idea is before the Lord is, is he's saying, look, Timothy, warn them. They are behaving in that stubborn, aggressive way verbally in the presence of God and he's not real pleased with it. Because the father, as he's watching his children be berated and harassed and someone forcing his kids to embrace their ideas, he's not pleased, not only because of the way people are being affected, but the other thing is, look what he says. He says about words to no profit. In other words, this wasn't even a crucial issue. It wasn't even something, it was more of an unessential matter and what they were striving to prove was not even that valuable. It didn't even really contribute to much benefit. He says it's of no profit. The debate doesn't even really have any major consequence. It's quite useless in the bigger picture of things. So they, they weren't helping and strengthening people. Their verbal striving, as I said, was, was just like a wrecking ball. And some people can get like this. In their temperaments or strong convictions or ideas, they have an overbearing attitude to prove their point. And, and actually, what was happening is, he says, they were ruining those who were listening. That is, they were damaging fellow believers, stumbling fellow Christians, hurting brothers and sisters in Christ, discouraging them, confusing them, or worse, and this happens, we've seen it, sometimes ruining the chance of some unbeliever who's a listener to this person going on and on and on who's getting completely turned off saying if that's what Christianity is about no thanks these people are weird and, and they're way too overbearing and they just get and, and it just turns them off and they have no desire or interest and so I would say in light of this you know God help us if you tend to be a person who has a propensity to feel very strongly about things and to strive over, listen, I'm not talking about biblical doctrine. I'm talking about over unessential things that are just your ideas, your opinions, your convictions, things that matter a lot to you. And if you tend to be someone who has that propensity to strive in that way verbally, ask God to help you repent of that, seriously. And to give you a sensitivity 
in regards to what can happen because if what you're saying is just harming and distracting and knocking people over I have to ask is that really God? Is that really of the Lord to bulldoze people and knock them over? Interesting that word ruin there in the original language is actually where we get our English word catastrophe. It's a pretty strong word. You're having a catastrophic effect upon people. Instead of building them up, you're bulldozing them over. You're just knocking their whole house down. And so we have to be careful of this. And if we see someone doing it, God help us. Perhaps it's helpful maybe to lovingly caution or intervene in that situation before more damage is done. So Paul then, going on verse 15, gives Timothy some instruction now personally how he could stay grounded and he could be influential and helpful to others. He says, Timothy, verse 15, you be diligent to present yourself approved to God. A worker who does not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. So Timothy was to put his focus and effort on doing what would obtain God's approval. And particularly, he was to remember, notice verse 15, to remember that he was God's keyword, verse 15, worker. Timothy, you're God's worker. That is both among the church and in the world. He was a worker for God. As far as God's work among the church, remember Jesus proclaimed, I will build my church. Now, when he said that, he wasn't talking about a physical building. He was talking about believers and followers. Ephesians 2 says that the family of God, Christians collectively, that we become like living stones, a temple of the Lord, whereby God's presence inhabits us. So part of the way that Jesus builds his church is he recruits workers to help him in building up the lives of his followers to help fellow believers. Jesus works through the ministry of his spirit to build up and strengthen people who are his followers by recruiting workers and laborers that he can work in cooperation with their voice and their body and their willingness to be used by the Lord to help build the church and bless the body of Christ. <clears throat> and the Lord is always looking for workers. The resume really doesn't matter. One thing matters on the resume. Are you saved? If you're saved... Your resume qualifies. And the Lord is always looking for workers to help fulfill his work, to minister to his people, to work among the church, to build the church, because there's always work that needs to be done for the church to remain healthy, for people to grow and mature spiritually. Workers are needed to serve various functions in the church and, and to do things, to fulfill different capacities. Ephesians 4, in fact, goes so far to say that when each part does their share in the church, that's how the church grows. Almost indicating that when one part says, ah, I, I, there's nothing I really, that, that actually that causes struggle for the church. That causes suffering for the body of Christ. It'd be like if one of your body parts just said, I'm taking a vacation. The rest of you keep working I'm just going to take, I'm just going to sit here. I'm just content to hang out in the body. And that one body part could cause problems for the whole rest of the body if it shuts down. And so again, there's work to be done among the church, but also Timothy was a worker as we are as well to be a worker among the world. And interesting, in the same way the church is portrayed as a building, in the Bible, the world is portrayed as a field. A field that's to be worked. And, 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 and again, the idea of the metaphor that we're to gather in a harvest of souls. 
And so the Bible, when it speaks of the world, portrays the world of that we need to realize that there is important work as well, not just within the church to be done, but the, in the outside world, that there are unsaved people, that there are souls to be harvested and brought into the kingdom of God that we need to minister to and reach out to the unsaved world as well. And it's not just a us four and no more club where we do our little things together and we fail to realize that there's a lot of work in the world that needs to be done. That there are people who don't know Christ and, and there's a specific part of the field that God wants to send you into. A part of his field of the world that he's put you in, where you live or where you work or what your school is or your sphere of influence. And he's put you in that part of the field to work in the fields of the world. Sometimes he sends us into a new field and he says, look, this is the new field I want you to enter into. And then by labors of love and by plowing up the hard ground with love and action and caring and serving for people and sowing the seed of God's word and then praying and, and asking God to bring in a harvest, that's how the work of the field of the world begins to bring fruitfulness. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 9 that when he saw the multitudes, it says this of Jesus, seeing the multitudes, he was moved with compassion for them because they were like weary and scattered sheep having no shepherd. And then he said to his disciples, having seen the world like that, the harvest is truly plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest field. Again, such an important thing. Timothy was God's worker as a pastor in Ephesus. Yes, but each of us has the capacity to work for God. God wants to use all of us. God wants to work through your life and God can work through your life. Whatever you can offer to God of your life, God will use that to bring about his works, whether it's among the church or out in the world. So the question I would simply ask is this, are you letting God use you? Are you letting God use you currently? Are you making yourself available to the Lord and saying, Lord, uh, put me to work? Are you doing any work for God? That's a part of your role. God wants to use you as a worker and make you accomplish things for his kingdom. And as God's worker, Timothy's interest was to be foremost, notice, as a worker to want God's approval. He says, be diligent to present yourself, verse 15, approved to God a worker who does not need to be ashamed. So in the same way, a secular worker works to the degree that they want the approval, right, of their overseer. That's whose approval you should seek when you're a worker. Well, the same applies spiritually. Our overseer in the work of God in the church or in the world is God himself. So we're to work in a way whereby the quality of our work, we want God's approval, and want the approval of God in whatever we do for the Lord. And no matter what your work is, the duty, the role, whatever it is you do, it's important because it's for God. And you're tending to God's business and God's work. And that's very important. So we're not looking to obtain the approval of people, but of God. Colossians 3 says, whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for men, since you know that you'll receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. It's the Lord Christ that you are serving. So Paul says, Timothy, be a worker seeking the approval of God, he says, so that you not find yourself ashamed. Now, why would somebody find themselves ashamed as a worker of God? Well, maybe perhaps because they realize that they've been unfaithful. 
And though God gave them something to do, they were an unfaithful worker. Or maybe they were a lazy worker or they weren't a very good steward with the opportunity or they didn't give their best. Or maybe they were compromising in some way because they kind of wanted to maintain approval from people or holding back or altering things to be more liked. And there's nothing more awkward than to feel shame of knowing that God gave you an opportunity to do work for him and, and, and you unfortunately failed to serve God to your greatest capacity. Nothing more awkward than that, than to feel that shame. So Paul indicates, I think in this verse, two specific ways how Timothy and you and I can obtain God's approval and avoid being ashamed as a worker. He says, first of all, verse 15, Timothy, he says, verse 15, be diligent. There's one way you can make sure you're going to get God's approval and not be ashamed as God's worker. Very simply, be diligent. Other translations render that work hard or do your best. The idea is of diligence. That term means steady and energetic effort in something. Uh, the diligent worker is someone who does a task with eagerness and hard work the point is they give their best to it it's not half-hearted it's not apathetic effort it's not you know minimal effort they are giving their absolute best they're diligent in their work they're faithful committed to it and they give their very best to it and if timothy did that and you and i do that that's what god's going to honor God's going to honor faithfulness and diligence that we gave our best. Listen, I'm the king of feeling like what I did for God amounted to nothing. But I care about one thing. When I cross the finish line, all I want to hear, you did your best. Amen. You did your best. And I appreciated that. And all the rest God can sort out in his business. And see, we may not have much to bring to the table, but I can bring this to the table. I'll give my best, Lord. Amen. I'll be faithful, Lord so that I can hear good and faithful servant. If that's the highest ideal that any of us can certainly do that, just be diligent in whatever God gives you to do. Give your best to it. No, that's what the approval of God will ultimately bring about. And notice as well, specifically as God's worker, Timothy's told in verse 15, particularly as a Bible teacher, that he was to be rightly dividing the word of truth. That term rightly dividing there speaks of cutting a straight line so that there are equal proportions on both sides. The idea is not going real far to the right or the left, whether it was plowing a field or cutting a straight line. Cutting a straight line so there are balanced proportions, not going way to one side or the other. The idea is that he was to be plowing a straight line through the word of God. As a teacher, he was to not become unbalanced or take things out of proportion to avoid extremes, but to carefully and properly interpret the truth of God's word. That he was to be accurate and correct in the explanation of what the text says and properly applying it to people's lives. The faithful Bible teacher should take a straightforward approach to the text of God's word and rightly divide it in proportion in its context and meaning, bringing out the truth to help people understand God's will. A, a good, faithful Bible teacher should not be depositing their own ideas into a text. That's called eisegesis. When you have ideas and then you go to the Word of God with your ideas and, and you use God's Word to reinforce your ideas and you go to it with pre... That's, that, that's eisegesis. We want exegesis. Exegesis is when you extract out of the text what is already there. Not that you're going to the text and putting ideas into it. 
or using the word of God as a proof text. You know, if you torture any text long enough, you can get it to confess to whatever you want usually. And some people do that. We don't want to use the word of God as, you know, clever, uh, you know, as filler for maybe some clever sermon. And so we can, you know, uh, give an illustrative, clever, you know, kind of catchy sermon and we'll just use some scriptures to throw it in there so it can be called a sermon still. When really it was just a presentation with a few Bible verses attached to it. No, the, the word of God is something to be exegeted, to be expounded, to do anything different is a shameful mishandling of the word of God. The word of God is to be rightly divided. The the faithful Bible teacher is to unpack and sort out in an understandable way what the text says. When God originally inspired it, what did God write into it? What did God mean? What was the, the purpose and context to properly break it apart through diligent study and preparation being a good worker, faithful to the word of God, because it's an important thing, cutting an accurate straight line of interpretation, not deviating from the original truth that was there in the word of God, but cutting a straight line, unpacking it, dissecting it, and then being able with that to see what God is saying, and then from there to present the word of God in a way where the truths are arranged where people can understand them they're clear they're in a digestible manner in an understandable way that it makes application to their lives and so the text is understood in proportion and they're able to have it rightly divided and to understand and to absorb it and be fed by it and to be nourished for their soul and to understand the truth of God and and if Timothy were to do this Paul says he would have God's approval and not need to be ashamed Well, after telling him what to engage himself in, verse 16, he now encourages him again what to avoid and not to get engaged in. He says, verse 16, Timothy, but shun profane and idle babblings for these will increase to more ungodliness. So Timothy was to do his best to stay occupied in the word of God, using his words to help people come to know the truth and would do best to avoid, notice, worldly and worthless conversations that really were going to do nothing but lead to ungodly outcomes. He says there, verse 16, look at it, he says, shun, that word means avoid, steer clear of, stay away from, profane, that is worldly, ungodly talking, and idle, that is worthless and empty chatter and conversations. And he says the reason why is those kind of things and those ungodly, worldly, empty conversations or debates, he says, they don't promote godliness. In fact, he says what they do is the exact opposite. They end up leading to ungodly attitudes and behaviors in both yourself and in other people who are getting engaged in them. And again, ungodliness or what is ungodly speaks of just what's displeasing to God. It's something that dishonors God. And one of the ways, I tell you this from what I have seen, one of the ways the devil will gladly distract God's work is to cause people to become preoccupied, God's workers and God's people, in empty worldly conversations and disputes and debates about what they find important or you know something that's critical to them and, and so certain conversations please know this certain conversations quite frankly are just worthless i mean they're just truly worthless they do nothing to build people up spiritually in fact 
Some conversations, like Paul says here in verse 16, they tend to just promote ungodliness. Whether it's in the things that we're saying or the things that people are responding in their attitude, and they just tend to bring ungodliness as the outcome. So the wise servant of the Lord learns how to navigate and to avoid worldly and worthless conversations and to just steer clear of those things. I encourage you, in regards to the power of speech and the effect and the impact, keep your spiritual radar up in conversations. Use discernment from the Holy Spirit. Don't get drawn into talking about or listening to conversations and communication that's just going to lead to further ungodliness. There are some conversations that sometimes I find the best thing to do is just dismiss myself from and just steer clear from. It just there's nothing good that's going to come out of that conversation right there. <laughs> there's nothing godly. In fact, everything ungodly is going to come out of that conversation in the end. You know, whether it's backbiting or criticism or people are hurt or offended. Or, and just sometimes it's just like, you know, there's nothing good that's going to come out of that conversation. It's just going to promote ungodliness. And so you just, you shun it. You just avoid it. Paul says you're just steer clear of that kind of stuff. And especially, that's totally important when it comes to somebody perhaps promoting false doctrine. And he gives an example of that in verse 17 and 18. He says their message will spread like cancer. Hymenaeus and Philetus are of this sort who have strayed concerning the truth, saying the resurrection has already passed, and they overthrow the faith of some. Notice what Paul does here in our text. He identifies by name two false teachers who were promoting error, and it was having a harmful effect upon people. Hymenaeus and Philetus, their message, Paul says it was like deadly cancer in its impact upon people. What was their error? Well, he mentions their error there in verse 18. He says they've strayed concerning the truth. That is, they had, unlike what Timothy was supposed to be doing, they had deviated from the truth of God's word. They weren't rightly dividing the truth of God's word. Instead, they had taken a detour off the path of truth and become engaged in promoting and saying other things. They weren't taking an accurate approach to Scripture. They weren't promoting the truth of God's Word. Instead, they had done something that was outside of that. And listen, any straying from the truth in teaching is leading other people into error. When you stray yourself from the truth and you're a teacher or someone who's speaking in the lives of others, you're not just straying, you're leading people astray. You're guiding other people off track. And one of the particular errors Paul mentions they were doing in verse 18, particularly, is he says they were telling people the resurrection is already past. Now, we're not 100% certain exactly what they were saying. That's all Paul mentions there. It seems that the people knew in that day what he was referring to. But clearly what they were doing in some way was contradicting the truth about the resurrection, somehow dismissing it saying it didn't apply or it wasn't available. And they were contradicting the biblical doctrine of resurrection. And the biblical doctrine of resurrection teaches that Jesus rose from the dead bodily, physically, and that he's returning in a bodily return to this earth. And that in the same way Jesus has a glorified eternal resurrection body, that as believers, one day you and I are going to receive a resurrection body 
a glorified resurrection body to experience eternity in a literal physical way. And somehow their message was conveying that's not true or this wasn't available for all believers. And so it was diminishing and disrupting the fullness of God's total plan of salvation, which is the redemption of body, soul and spirit that God completely redeems a person as he prepares them for eternally and as they were dismissing the physical resurrection they were robbing the power and the purpose of the resurrection of Jesus of the resurrection bodies we're supposed to receive according to the word of God and the resurrection of the dead which teaches one day every man will stand before their creator and give account before God and the reason this was so damaging 1 Corinthians 15, read the entirety of the chapter. The resurrection is a fundamental doctrine to Christianity. Paul said, you take away the resurrection, you've ruined Christianity. You've just destroyed it in all of its purpose. So whatever they were doing to deny any part of the true message of the resurrection robs the power of God of what Jesus did and what he's going to do And it as well robs people from a crucial understanding of spiritual and eternal realities. You see what he says regarding not only the error, but the effect of their error of straying from the truth. In verse 17, he says, this error of what they were doing, he says, it's going to spread, Paul says, verse 17, like cancer. Now, let me just say, that is purposeful language. That medical image of cancer is intended to be a very strong graphic message. Some translations render that term that's used there gangrene and and, and it's meant to show this is the horrible impact of error, of false teaching, of, of conveying something that is not true in line with the word of God. Its effect upon God's people is like cancer. I don't think we need a lot of explanation in regards to the effect of cancer in a human body, what it does. It spreads and it destroys And it kills. And it's something that if it's not addressed radically, when you have cancer, well, I mean, yeah, I know I have it, but I mean, it's just a little bit of cancer. Who does that? It's cancer. When it's cancer, you get radical with cancer. It has to be removed. It has to be eradicated, attacked. And this is the idea of the Bible saying God's perspective of bad doctrine, of error, to people's souls and the effect it can have. Same thing like gangrene. Again, no one would dismiss that. He says, verse 18, at the end of it, these men have overthrown the faith of some. That is what they were teaching wrong was actually destroying and shipwrecking people spiritually. It was not a light issue. It was a serious issue. And I think to some degree, as God's people, we have to be careful and realize how dangerous and destructive error and bad theology and false teaching is. It is morally and spiritually eternally destructive to people's souls. So Paul boldly identified these two guys by name to caution people of the danger of their teaching. I have to wonder by the Spirit of God today, who who might God identify? Don't shout out. Who might God identify? Hey, this one, they're shipwrecking people's faith by the things that they're teaching. Well, lest the success of the false teachers be perceived wrongly, it seems, and Timothy think the purpose of God and the purpose of the church was destroyed. Paul concludes verse 19 by saying, Nevertheless, the solid foundation of God stands, having this seal. The Lord knows those who are his and let everyone who names the name of Christ depart 
from iniquity. Now, when he says, verse 19, the solid foundation of God stands, it seems very clearly that Paul's making a reference to the institution of the church when he talks about the solid foundation of God. We know the Bible teaches in the New Testament that Jesus is the cornerstone and foundation of the church. Paul in 1 Timothy 3 says the church itself is the pillar and ground of truth. The Bible as well tells us in Ephesians 2 that the work of the apostles and prophets in the early church was the foundation of God's house. So it seems Paul is trying to make a reference to the institution of the church being the solid foundation whereby God's work and God's truth and kingdom unfolds and builds from that God is building his kingdom through the church established by Jesus and nothing was going to disrupt or destroy the solid foundation of God's work among his true church now with that being said Paul also mentions here two characterizing marks of those who are a true part of the church he says in the beginning of verse 19 that it's people who have a sincere personal relationship with Jesus who are part of the true church? What's a characterizing mark of those who are part of the true church? Those who have a sincere relationship with Jesus. He says, verse 19, the Lord knows those who are his. The Lord knows those who are truly his. Listen, this is so important because just because people come to the house of God for meetings or gather together with the Lord's people or participate in spiritual activities is no guarantee that they are a true follower of Jesus. Judas Iscariot walked with Jesus for three years. He saw his miracles. He heard every teaching Jesus gave live. He even got to participate in Jesus' ministry. And he never was a follower of Jesus Christ. The Lord knows those who are truly his. Jesus makes a sobering statement in Matthew chapter 7. He says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Many, that's scary, will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, done many wonders in your name? And I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you worker of iniquity. The Bible teaches the Lord knows those who truly belong to him. He knows the difference between those who are just spiritual spectators and pretenders and participants in meetings and those who have truly entered into a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. How dare you say that? I know Jesus. I, I know about Jesus. But does Jesus know you? Well, I know about... There are people who know about my wife, but they don't know my wife like I do. I know my wife in a personal, intimate, deep, profound way. And there's a difference between knowing about Jesus, knowing who Jesus is, and genuinely knowing Jesus in such a way where it's not, well, I know Jesus. The question is, does Jesus know you? Have you come to a place where genuinely you have entered into a relationship where Jesus say, yeah, I know you? Or would you hear the Lord say, I don't know who you are. You attended meetings with my people, but I don't know who you are. I remember when I was with a group of friends a number of years ago, I was brand new, saved about a year or so into it, and I'm, we're sharing with a couple of friends, and we've been going to, you know, Christian meetings together and worship Bible study or whatever and a group of us were hanging out together and one night we just started sharing our testimonies 
and we're sharing our testimonies, how we got saved and came to the Lord. And so we share, and then this person sharing, this person sharing, and there's about four or five of us. And all of a sudden, we realize that one of the guys who's sitting there with us, he's got tears just running down his face. And we're like, what the? I thought maybe just somebody's story really touched his heart. And he looked at us straight as can be, sincere as can be, and he said, I don't think I'm saved. And he said, I've been going to these meetings and I've been listening to the Bible studies and I've been singing the songs. But what you're talking about, that's never happened in my life yet. And he realized that though he was participating, he truly had not come to a place of personal surrender and inviting the Lord into his life and genuinely have a salvation experience. Let that not happen. The Lord knows those who are his. And Paul says as well, and those who name the name of Christ, when you've made that confession, depart from iniquity. So another characterizing mark of a true Christian is this. They are people who repent of sinful living to pursue living righteously and pleasing to the Lord. Those who claim and name the name of Christ, that he's now their Lord, Paul says they should be departing from iniquity. There should be a change. That if you claim to be a follower of Jesus Christ and you're a true part of his church, then it will be evidence that you will depart from living in iniquity and sin. I, I, don't, I can't live that way anymore because Jesus is Lord of my life now. There'll be a difference because you'll turn from sin and pursue what is righteous. Listen, the Bible's making it very evident in this text. When we see what's wrong in many different ways, when we see error, we are personally responsible to turn from error. That's our responsibility. And here's what's important as well. God knows what's true. He'll never change the truth. The standard will be the truth and God knows what's true about you and God knows what's true about me. And one day we're going to stand before him and give account in regards to that. Shall we stand together?